creative babble. This podcast contains disturbing and violent content. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Criminal Conduct. It was just dropped from the get-go. I mean, you hear the word suicide and everybody's throwing it around because Jeremy's yelling suicide. So what, we're just going to take his word for it? Ten years later, Michelle's friends and family are struggling to let go. I just want to be able to prove that he did it and, you know, why Why can't we go to court? Why? <laughs> if you're so innocent and you didn't do it, prove it. Now, if the perpetrator is a police officer, the chances reduce dramatically of the victim calling for help because too often people think that, you know, the, the law enforcement family, it's a family and therefore nothing's going to happen and, and the victim won't be believed. And just last year, Eli Washtock was close to wrapping up his investigation before someone murdered him. You have a feeling some shit could happen, so you got your kid living in the condo below you. Like, why the hell wouldn't you just pack your shit and came back up to Wisconsin? Or even that said, hey, kid, you got to go stay at your mom for a little while. Shit's getting hairy around here. I don't know what's going to happen. After Eli Washtock's murder, the media reported that he was having his son live in a separate condo downstairs because he feared for his safety. But when we spoke with Eli's friends and family, they had no idea he was taking these kinds of precautions. So much of what the media initially reported turned out to be wrong. So did Eli actually rent a condo downstairs? Or did he just let his son stay at a friend's house? Or maybe Eli owned another property and had his son stay there. None of this adds up. We did some digging and found several addresses tied to Eli. We couldn't find any other condo associated with Eli at the World Golf Village where he lived. But we did find an address for a nearby house on Ardmore Street in St. Johns County. It's not far from Eli's condo. Could this be where his son was living? When John and I were in St. Augustine, we decided to drive by the house to see what we could learn. By the way, we're talking about going to an address that we found on Craig Washtock, Eli Washtock's property search information. It was not the condo where he was murdered. Turn left onto Florida 16 East. Related to him. Well, it was another property that was related to him, but that also appears active during the time that he was alive. So that means that there's also this like speculation that that uh, his son was living somewhere else, right? That he had uh, maybe a second condo or a second house or something, right? So we're driving there now. When we arrived at the address, there was a neighbor outside working in her garage. Hi. 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 Excuse me. Hi, we're working on a podcast and we were trying to find out, do you know if Eli Eli Washtock lived across the street? No English. No English. Oh, habla español? Si, habla español. We approached the neighbor to see if she knew Eli. The woman didn't speak English, but luckily, Javier speaks Spanish. ¿Tú sabes si había un hombre que se llamaba Eli Washtaw? Que vivía... Al frente. Al frente, sí. ¿Se murió? Sí, que se murió. For this portion of the interview, I'm merely a spectator, understanding about one out of ten words. Javier continues to talk with the neighbor in Spanish. I asked the lady if she knew a man named Eli Washtaw who lived right across the street. She responded, the man who died? I never even brought up the fact that Eli died. Maybe we're onto something here. 
en esa casa vivía. Él vivía ahí, él vivía pero ahí. no cuando se murió, ¿verdad? Sí, él murió ahí. ¿Él murió ahí o en un apartamento? No, él murió ahí. The woman went on to say that the man died in that house, pointing across the street. I asked, are you sure he died in that house or in a nearby condo? And she replied without any hesitation, he died right there. Again, pointing at that house on Ardmore Street. Javier and I are very confused because Eli Washtok did not die in this house. He died at the World Golf Village condos a few miles away. But she insists he died right here in this neighborhood. The woman said she learned something tragic happened when she saw the police in an ambulance parked along the street. ¿Y tú estabas aquí en el barrio cuando él se murió? Sí, yo estaba aquí. Mm, she says that he died here. That doesn't make any sense. She couldn't remember exactly when this took place, but she said it was this year, meaning 2019. She also told me that after he died, his wife moved away with the kids to an apartment. But then her description of him started to fall apart. I asked, did he have a ponytail? Tenía como un puño. No te acuerdas? No recuerdo si she couldn't era. remember. She said he was about 50. Eli was 38. She also said he was short. Eli was fairly tall, over six feet. I think she might be talking about somebody else because it, she says it was him, a woman, and the son. Okay. I mean, it could be. Ah, okay, bueno, muchas gracias. Okay, gracias. We went next door to talk with another neighbor. Yeah, we're trying to find out Eli Washtock if he lived across the street from here. It would have been earlier this year with his son. There was a family there before, husband and wife, I want to say three boys. Three boys. The oldest son would have been about that age. This neighbor didn't know the family, but she too says that the man who lived there died. She also said that he had a wife and kids. He, did, he killed himself? Yeah. In that house? Yeah. And was that recent? About four months ago, maybe. Okay. Because the wife moved out pretty quickly afterwards. And you don't know their names, or you do? I don't. Okay. Could you could you describe the guy? I have no idea. Oh, you don't? Okay. I stepped on what the woman just said, but she indicated that the father killed himself. The dates she provided didn't line up perfectly with Eli's murder, but they were close. The second neighbor also indicated that the man worked on cars, which is what Eli did for a living. Uh, okay, here's what doesn't make sense about that. This could be Eli, but w the reason why I think it's not Eli is that everybody's saying that he committed suicide. There. There. And we don't, but I, when I asked this lady, and I didn't, obviously I wasn't doing live translation for you, but no, she was, um, she said, I said, were you there when the police and the ambulance were here? And she goes, yeah, yeah. But she didn't sound super confident about that. Because I was trying to say, well, I was trying to eliminate the fact that I was like, maybe we just got the wrong guy. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Head southeast on Ardmore Street toward Mackenzie Circle. We had a mystery on our hands. There were a lot of similarities between what the neighbors were telling us and Eli. But for this to be Eli, they had to have some facts wrong. When the reports first leaked about Eli, law enforcement hinted at the idea of suicide because they only called his death suspicious. They also said there was no threat to society. The suicide narrative was there, initially. 
Yet we knew for certain that Eli didn't die at the address we just visited. He was killed in his condo in World Golf Village a few miles down the road. We had to do some extensive research to figure out the disconnect. Maybe through some real-life game of telephone, Eli being murdered in World Golf Village transitioned somehow into suicide at this residence. John, so it's been a few weeks since we visited the neighborhood on Ardmore Street. What were you able to find? The Ardmore House Street sold in early May of 2019. The one neighbor said that his wife stayed in the house for a while after the suicide. January 31st to early May is just over three months. The timeline adds up. It does. I searched obituaries and death records for around this time. I found someone who died in early 2019 while living at the Ardmore address. Who lived there? It was a man by the name of Richard, along with his family. He lived at the Ardmore address after Eli. According to this website with death notices, it says here that Richard died on January 21st, 2019, just 10 days before Eli was murdered. I requested his autopsy from the medical examiner's office. This guy, who we thought might be Eli, died of a self-inflicted gun wound to the head. So, two people who lived in the same house, a couple years apart, both died of a gunshot wound within days of each other? Yes, exactly. So, this was just a wild goose chase. You could say that, but it's also one weird coincidence. And if we didn't run this to the ground, we would always be wondering if it was connected somehow. From the creators of Twisted and Pretend, this is Criminal Conduct Season 1, an investigative podcast looking into the death of Michelle O'Connell and the murder of Eli Washtock. The song featured in our intro, Bury the Body, was written by Dave Brophy and Ruby Rose Fox. It's performed by the hugely talented Ruby Rose Fox. You can find our intro song as well as all of her music through iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you download music. I think about Michelle probably most days. She'll pass through my mind and, you know, I drive, drive by where she's buried almost every day and I'll you know, always look over in her direction. This is Austin Taylor. You know, she's more than just a, a case to me. Because I knew so many people were turning against Jeremy, I had to know the facts. Austin has known Jeremy Banks since high school, and he says that the narrative against Jeremy Banks is all wrong. The media has been extremely unkind to Jeremy. They make him out to be the bad guy, and then, you know, what? what's going to sell? What's going to get more ratings? Somebody who committed suicide or a cop who killed somebody and there was a big cover-up and all this crap? According to Austin, Jeremy constantly has to deal with people glaring at him in public. Let me put it this way. There's this crazy lady that lives down the street from him that is very vocal online about how she's a Wiccan and how she casts spells and curses on Jeremy all the time because she walks, I'm not joking, <laughs> she walks by his house and literally speaks curses at him. And she, uh, she verbally assaults him almost on a daily basis and he just smiles and waves and goes back in his house. I mean, she's, she's the only time he's ever actually had any like altercation with her was I think he was trying to get out of the driveway and she was blocking his driveway. And he finally got out and was like, can you please effing get out of the way? Like, I'm trying to go. I asked Austin if Jeremy ever loses his temper when he drinks. 
Just so you know, I, I mean, we've spoken to some people that are just afraid to just talk to us on the record. We've heard some things firsthand uh, that are not flattering. I mean, yeah, kind of, but he's not like, I mean, really no worse than anybody else I know. And when Jeremy drinks too, I've never seen him drunk and like violent. I've never seen that. I've seen him like, he gets drunk and plays around. I mean, I used to drink, me and him used to drink around or drink together a lot. We've, we've throttled it back a lot now that we're older, you know what I mean? But we used to, uh, we used to drink pretty frequently together and you know, he's, a jovial, happy person usually when he's drinking. I mean, does he get emotional? I mean, like everybody kind of does. I think alcohol kind of intensifies it. I've sat down and drank with Jeremy, you know, back when we were young. You know what I mean? We were in our early 20s. And, you know, I've sat down and drank with him enough times to where if he had something to confess, he probably would have confessed it. I didn't know what to expect when I first called Austin Taylor and what his opinions were on the case, but he is fully behind Jeremy. To him, there's no doubt. This was a suicide. It's really, really shocking to me how few people are so opinionated on it but have never read all the evidence. But I think that they kind of indicated that Jeremy basically executed her sort of in, in the room and then cleaned some things up, called 911, made sure he washed his hands and things like that, and then and the paramedics came. But what a lot of people forget if you read the evidence that Michelle was still alive when the paramedics got there, she, she was not dead when they got there. She, she still had a heartbeat and they tried to resuscitate it. If he had not called the police immediately after he heard the gunshot, she would have been long dead when they got there. And she wasn't. Austin says he poured through every publicly available report related to this case. And there's a lot to read. Hundreds of pages of documents. We know John and I have been buried in documents. And I spent days going through to read it because even though, you know, I was friends with Jeremy, I trusted him and believed him. I wanted to read everything. I wanted to see everything exactly, you know, black and white evidence that they have found. Austin says, just try to see past the headlines and look at the facts. The, the stuff that people totally choose to ignore, the stuff that she was sending text messages to her siblings, telling them to make sure her daughter was taken care of. The fact that she had gunshot residue on her hands. You know, that's not stuff that just, just appears she had to have fired that gun the big thing for me man is i i really want to focus and i hope your podcast is focusing on on this is, is just really going straight to the evidence and that's exactly what we're going to focus on today the evidence let's start with the cut above michelle's right eye how did she get this injury Dr. Hoban, who conducted the original autopsy, claimed that it was from an ejected shell casing. He believed that the shell casing caused the cut that resulted in the blood flowing down Michelle's face. We turned to a firearms expert, someone who had fired a lot of rounds. Lucas Apps was a United States Practical Shooting Association A-class shooter. He also worked as a chief range officer for the National Range Officers Association. We asked Lucas, with all his experience around semi-automatic handguns, how many times has he been cut by an ejected shell casing? I've been burned many, 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 many times by them. When he's officiating competitive shooting, he's running with the competitors, which results in a lot of spent shell casings hitting him. Did any of those casings ever cut him? When you're running the, the timer for a shooter, in a lot of situations, you're getting hit by every shell casing that comes out of their gun. It's just where you have to stand to be in the safest position. And boy, I I can't say I've ever had one 
cut me. And especially not cut me enough that I would be, you know, bleeding. I've been cut by ricochets, um, where it's actual like bullet jackets and stuff coming back and cutting me. But I've never been, I, that I can think of from a shell casing. Lucas says he's never been cut. But how many times has he been hit by shell casings? So as a range officer, probably quarter million thereabouts, maybe maybe even more than that. And then rounds that I've per personally fired from a from a uh, semi-automatic handgun, probably 100,000, 200,000, something like that. I, I've been burned by several, but I cannot think of one that's cut me. I've fired a lot less rounds than Lucas, but I've never received a cut from an ejected round, nor have I seen anyone else receive a cut from a dispensed round. So you think it's pretty clear that the shell casing didn't cause the cut above Michelle's eye? Absolutely. If the shell casing didn't cause the cut, then what did? Dr. Predra Bullock, who reviewed the original autopsy and concurred with Dr. Hoban's findings of suicide, had a different theory. He believed the cut above Michelle's right eye resulted from the tactical light attached to Jeremy Banks' H&K 45 caliber duty weapon. He theorized that the tactical light struck her eyebrow during the recoil. He also believed that Michelle held the weapon upside down, which allowed the tactical light to line up with the cut above her eye. We asked Lucas what he thought of this theory. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a strange thing because handguns can do funny things sometimes, especially if you're not holding them correctly or you're holding them in a weird way. Lucas was having trouble wrapping his mind around how a gun could recoil forward. He continued to try to think of a way the tactical light or any part of the firearm could have caused Michelle's eye injury. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm having a tough time in my head coming up with a situation where that could happen. Dr. Bullock's explanation for the injury just defied common sense and the laws of physics. Guns recoil backwards, not forwards. Yet, he had to come up with an explanation for the injury tied to the gunshot, or else he needed to change the manner of death. Four months after Michelle died, her mom, Patty O'Connell, was still working at the St. John's Sheriff's Office when she was called into a conference room. She didn't know it yet, but she was about to meet with her boss, Sheriff David Shore. But when he walks in, the first thing he says is, I don't have time for this. I should be doing other things to help my employees. Sheriff Shore wanted to inform Patty O'Connell that he was reluctantly requesting the Florida Department of Law Enforcement to take over the death investigation. But then he, then he said, they won't find anything. And I was really shocked. The Florida Department of Law Enforcement, or FDLE for short, is a statewide law enforcement agency that assists police and sheriff's office with homicide cases, police misconduct, and other types of investigations. FDLE also provides security for the governor. This was huge news for the O'Connell family. For the first time, an independent organization was going to look into this case. When they examine all the evidence, will they side with the sheriff or will they discover foul play? FDLE assigned a retired vice detective from Jacksonville named Rusty Rogers to head up the investigation. When Agent Rogers arrived in St. Augustine in February 2010, he hit the ground running. Rusty Rogers had his work cut out for him. Sheriff Shore's detectives did a poor job investigating the scene. They collected minimal meaningful evidence and barely talked to any witnesses. How much evidence could Rusty Rogers collect now, five months after a scene has been cleared? 
The first time Patty O'Connell met Rusty Rogers, she said he was professional, but dressed casually in slacks and a shirt with no tie. He appeared to be in his late 50s. He told her he wasn't on her side or anyone's side. His job was to investigate her daughter's death. Patty described it as a short meeting and said she was quite skeptical. She felt like this was just another attempt to placate her and her family. Even though Patty remained skeptical regarding FDLA's investigation, the tide was shifting. Up to this point, Michelle's death had only been referred to in one manner, suicide. That was about to change. Agent Rusty Rogers wasted no time. Remember Jeremy's surface weapon, the HK 45 caliber pistol, next to Michelle's left hand? It was just sitting on a shelf somewhere since her death. For months, no one ever checked it for fingerprints or any other forensic evidence. Agent Rusty Rogers sent the gun to the lab, and what he found was pretty eye-opening. According to Rusty Rogers, even though it was inside Michelle's mouth when it was fired, Jeremy's gun didn't have any blood on it. My question is, in both the suicide and the homicide scenario, wouldn't a gun fired at such close proximity create so much pressure that blood and tissue would fly everywhere? We can only speculate, but Rusty Rogers said the gun was free of blood. It also didn't have Jeremy's fingerprints on it, but rarely do fingerprints adhere to a pistol. Interestingly, the lab didn't find Jeremy's DNA on the firearm either. Wasn't Jeremy working a shift that day? Why wasn't his DNA on the gun? I don't know. It should be, but not always. Remember, an absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. It's possible he could have handled the firearm and his DNA just didn't attach. Javier, I'd be surprised if Eli Washtok didn't have the same questions we do. I agree. I believe this is where Eli was focused. Agent Rogers also found something else worth noting. Those painkillers found in Michelle's purse and pocket, they didn't have any of her DNA on them either. Let's turn to the gunshot residue, or GSR, results. Michelle had a significant amount of gunshot residue on her hands, but the lab only identified one micron of GSR on Jeremy Banks's hands. It's my understanding that if you fired a gun in the next room and I walked in, I could have gunshot residue on me. Or even if you brushed up against me, you could transfer gunshot residue onto me. So knowing this, Jeremy Banks should have a decent amount of gunshot residue on him, right? That's correct. Under either a suicide or homicide scenario, I would expect to find gunshot residue on both of them. However, GSR is not predictable, so I don't put a lot of weight on the amounts of GSR found on either of them. Jeremy may have washed his hands, but it's possible that the GSR just didn't attach to him. Some reports indicate that Rusty Rogers began referring to Michelle's case as a homicide just days after his investigation started. He had done some interviews and gotten some results back from the lab, but this was still very early on in the investigation. It appeared Agent Rogers may have already made up his mind. Just like the St. John's Sheriff's Office, he quickly came to a conclusion, or at least a strong narrative, which would guide his future decisions in the case. The FDLE investigation appeared to be running on tunnel vision. To evaluate Michelle's condition and the crime scene itself, Agent Rusty Rogers brought in a crime scene reconstructionist to look at the case with fresh eyes. In April of 2011, Jerry Finley turned his report into the FDLE. According to his report, Michelle was shot while in the sitting or kneeling position. Jerry Finley says that Michelle was struck by the front side of the firearm. 
Finley also determined that the impact bloodstains on Michelle's right arm and sleeve were consistent with a defensive position. Jerry Finley also identified blood on the inside of Jeremy's yellow t-shirt, but he indicated from the photos that they were not clear enough to determine the blood pattern. Interestingly enough, this was not the shirt Jeremy Banks was wearing at the concert. At some point during the evening of September 2nd, 2010, Jeremy Banks changed from the long sleeve button-down shirt he wore at the concert into a yellow t-shirt. Let's talk about the position of the gun. According to Jerry Finley, the gun wouldn't have ended up where law enforcement found it because of her spinal cord injury. Remember, the bullet severed Michelle's spine. Finley said that it would have been impossible for Michelle to move her hands after the injury. According to Finley, under the suicide scenario, if Michelle shot herself with her left hand, her weak hand, she would have had blood on her left arm and sleeve, yet her arm was free of blood. He also found the absence of Jeremy's DNA on the duty weapon to be suspicious. Blood was also found on the duty belt that housed the firearm, but there wasn't any blood between the body and the belt, which Finley identified as inconsistent. Ultimately, Jerry Finley concluded Michelle O'Connell's death was more consistent with homicide. Agent Rusty Rogers did everything Sheriff Shore and his detectives did not. He interviewed the O'Connell family, he sent evidence to the lab, he hired reconstruction experts, and interviewed first responders who were at the scene. But two weeks after Rusty Rogers started digging, he found a break in the case that changed everything. Two witnesses. The night that Michelle died, two neighbors said they heard a woman scream for help, then they heard a gunshot. Wow. This is huge. Because if this is true, this completely contradicts Jeremy's story. Exactly. The two neighbors were Stacy Boswell and Heather Ladley. Here's Stacy Boswell from the PBS Frontline documentary. They also said that they heard another voice. The two, who we will refer to as ear witnesses, told Agent Rusty Rogers that 10 to 15 minutes later, they heard sirens. What were the neighbors doing when they heard all this? The ear witnesses told Agent Rogers that they were outside in their garage talking and smoking. Agent Rogers asked Heather Ladley what she did next, and she said, um, nothing happened next. I went in, went to bed. Remember, St. John's County Sheriff's Office didn't interview any neighbors. This was the first time the ear witnesses were asked about this incident. So if they didn't tell police about what they heard that night, how did Rusty Rogers find out about them five months after the fact? Uh, that's a good question. Rusty said that he got a tip from Sierra Morris, a friend of Michelle O'Connell. Somehow she learned that the two women were outside at the exact moment Michelle was shot. Both the state attorney and agent Rusty Rogers interviewed the ear witnesses under oath and found them to be credible. Then they made the two women undergo polygraph examinations, which they both passed. We reached out to both witnesses. Stacy Boswell never responded to our request for an interview, and Heather Laidley asked us to never contact her again. When Agent Rusty Rogers visited Jeremy Banks' neighborhood to talk with potential witnesses, he saw Jeremy near his house. He approached. According to Rusty, he yelled out to Jeremy, who responded in a loud and aggressive voice, Who's there? Rusty identified himself and his partner. According to Rusty, as Jeremy walked into the garage, he stated, quote, I just stopped by to get rid of some of her shit from the house, unquote. 
Jeremy then corrected himself and said, quote, I mean, pack up some of her stuff, unquote. Clearly, Jeremy still has some hostility towards Michelle. Agent Rusty Rogers conducted a thorough investigation. He had new forensic evidence and an independent crime reconstructionist who concluded homicide. And he had ear witnesses who claimed they heard a woman scream for help around the time of Michelle's death. Now, there was only one thing left to do. Interview Jeremy Banks. In April 2011, Jeremy Banks willingly drove up to Jacksonville, Florida without an attorney and agreed to be interviewed by Agent Rogers. Agent Rogers began to question Jeremy. He said, quote, We believe that we can prove what happened that night to a certain degree. And I'm telling you right now, face to face, brother to brother, that if there's something else that happened other than what you're telling me today, today is the last chance you're going to have to get that out, unquote. Jeremy Banks told Rusty Rogers that he was concerned, and Rogers responded that he wanted Jeremy to be concerned. Rogers then asked Jeremy if he was nervous. Jeremy replied, yeah, I'm nervous as shit because I'm freaking out inside. Rogers then began showing Jeremy Banks the evidence he had collected, demonstrating that he had a strong criminal case against him. Jeremy Banks stopped Agent Rogers and requested an attorney. Agent Rogers then said, quote, we're done, and told Jeremy that he could no longer show him any of the evidence. Rusty Rogers then seized Jeremy's cell phone from the table and said, quote, I have a search warrant for your phone, so I'm taking your phone, unquote. Rogers also told Jeremy that he couldn't leave because he obtained a search warrant for his house. With that, Rogers then asked Jeremy if he needed a phone to call his attorney. Jeremy responded that he didn't have a lawyer. This whole time, Jeremy thought that he was being arrested. He was told not to leave and that his phone was being taken away from him. Yet at the beginning of the interview, Agent Rogers told Jeremy that he was free to leave if he didn't like the way the interview was going. John, did Rusty Rogers find anything noteworthy during his searches? He did. Agent Rogers presented circumstantial evidence from a laptop, which belonged to both Michelle and Jeremy. He found some web searches that were pretty disturbing. One search read, quote, made to look like a suicide. Another search entry said, quote, cops killing their wives slash girlfriends. And another said, quote, police and domestic violence. According to slides presented by Rusty Rogers, the searches took place before Michelle O'Connell's death. But Sheriff Shore disputes this. If these searches did take place on the dates identified by Rusty Rogers, then they would be quite incriminating. Wow, that is chilling. But do we know who made these searches? No, this doesn't tell us the who, just the what. The dates are everything, because if they were after Michelle's death, then they take on a totally different meaning. Do we have the actual computer log to confirm this? No, we just have Agent Rogers saying this. And this shouldn't be in debate. A forensic analysis of the computer should have identified the exact dates of each search. Michelle's mom, Patty O'Connell, told Rusty Rogers at the time, and she also just confirmed with me recently that she made very similar searches on this computer in the month after Michelle's death. How did Patty have the computer to be able to do the searches? Jeremy gave it to one of Michelle's siblings shortly after her death. The O'Connell family had possession of the computer until it was turned over to Agent Rogers. Though at first glance, those searches look quite incriminating, they appear to be more consistent with someone curious about what happened than someone who was planning a murder. I think those searches were probably conducted by Patty O'Connell, but if Rusty Rogers did present the correct dates, then I think there is some compelling, though circumstantial evidence that should be analyzed much more closely. Things are not looking good for Jeremy. 
During his investigation, Agent Rusty Rogers met with the St. Johns County Undersheriff to discuss the status of the investigation into the Michelle O'Connell death. Agent Rogers' findings were hard to ignore. The undersheriff then met with Sheriff Shore. He told the sheriff that high-impact blood spatter was found on the inside of Jeremy Banks' t-shirt from the night of Michelle's death. High-impact blood spatter comes from the firing of a gun. It's completely different from a blood stain associated with someone coming into contact with a bloody item or person, such as brushing up against something. The presence of high-impact blood spatter meant that circumstantially, Jeremy was very close to Michelle when the fatal shot occurred. If true, this was extremely incriminating toward Jeremy. Based on this information, the undersheriff placed Deputy Jeremy Banks on administrative leave with pay until the resolution of the case. I called Michelle's mom, Patty O'Connell. What were your thoughts when, when he was put on leave? Well, when he was put on leave, that's a red flag that he, they must suspect him of something. I was glad in a way, but I was very, very nervous that we, he might take revenge on our family. Patty felt Rusty Rogers' involvement was a positive turn for her daughter's case. Nobody else would even give us the time of day in the St. John's County Sheriff's Office. They didn't want to know. So during this time when, when Jeremy's on leave, Rusty was running his investigation. Uh, did, in your conversations with Rusty Rogers, did you have any, did he give you any kind of indication? Like, did you think that, that Jeremy was going to be arrested or what were your thoughts? No, no, not at all. I, he was basically um, give me the facts kind of guy. He didn't like say, we're going to get him or none of that. It was, he was very professional. Though Patty O'Connell remained cautious in her optimism, the same couldn't be said for her son, Scott O'Connell. Scott was a deputy sheriff with St. John's County, but he was also Michelle's older brother. He wanted to be kept in the loop by Agent Rogers. According to later statements by Scott, Rusty led him to believe Jeremy Banks would be indicted for his sister's murder. Scott believed it was only a matter of time before the handcuffs were to be put on Jeremy Banks. Eight months after Michelle's death, people in and around the investigation voiced concerns about Rusty Rogers' conduct. But did Rusty Rogers zero in on Jeremy Banks based on limited evidence, or was he cherry-picking his findings? Rusty Rogers' investigation created a sea of change. Remember Dr. Frederick Hoban, the first medical examiner who originally performed the autopsy on Michelle O'Connell and ruled her death a suicide? Well, he changed his opinion. Here's what he wrote. Quote, Information, which was persuasive for me, came from two neutral witnesses who lived near the death scene. These persons both reported hearing a woman's voice cry for help. Then a gunshot was heard, followed by another cry for help. And then finally, a second gunshot was heard. Unquote. On June 7, 2011, nine months after Michelle's death was originally ruled a suicide, Dr. Hoban amended Michelle's death certificate and indicated that she was, quote, shot by another person. And then the manner of death was now, quote, homicide. This changed everything. This whole time, the O'Connell family was calling for an independent investigation, but they said that Sheriff Shore refused. The O'Connells claimed the sheriff told them that an independent agency would never find any new evidence. But here we are, two new witnesses, questions raised by new forensic evidence, and a death certificate now reading Michelle O'Connell's death was a homicide. This apparent shifting of the tide didn't last long the investigators became the target. Sheriff Shore was not about to sit there and watch his deputy being targeted by what he considered a rogue and unethical investigator. He went on the offensive. 
the most powerful law enforcement officer in St. Johns County, was determined to take back the narrative in this case. Here's Sheriff Shore speaking at a St. Johns County Sheriff's staff meeting. We also, of course, have Jeremy Banks with us, and also with, with Jeremy and Lindsay are his parents, uh, Marsha and Larry. I've known, I've known both of them for many, many, many years. And sitting up front next to Jeremy is Scott O'Connell. Let's give them all a round of applause. There may be some of you in this room who have doubts about this case. I don't know, man, I think it was a homicide. Don't be embarrassed and don't be ashamed. Because you know what? There was a point in time when I thought there was some culpability on Jeremy's part. But I didn't know until later that the information that I based that on was false. I'm not standing in front of you today to tell you that, oh, we just did fine. It was these two, these two rogue agents. I'm in charge of this agency. I'm steering the boat. When the good things happen, y'all let me stand up in front of the cameras. When the bad things happen, I own that. And you know, they were right that night, and they're still right. In March 2013, Sheriff Shore drafted a 153-page rebuttal against the FDLE's investigation into Michelle O'Connell's death. He also delivered a letter requesting an internal investigation be conducted against FDLE Special Agent Rusty Rogers and his supervisor. The formal complaint from Sheriff Shore resulted in Rusty Rogers getting removed from the case while FDLE investigated the allegations. Agent Rusty Rogers was to turn in his gun and badge and have no further contact with anyone surrounding this case. And it didn't end there. The sheriff's campaign to discredit Rusty Rogers escalated. Jeremy Banks filed a lawsuit claiming that his civil rights were violated. The lawsuit claimed that Agent Rusty Rogers coached witnesses and manipulated facts and evidence in order to obtain warrants to search his property. Now, the focus in this case has shifted. For a brief moment in time, the O'Connell family felt hope, but now things were spinning out of control. Those looking into Michelle O'Connell's death were now on the defensive. Sheriff Shore was out for revenge or justice, depending on your perspective. He wanted Rusty Rogers fired or better yet, thrown in jail. We all know that in tragedies, we've got heroes, we've got villains, and we have victims. But the vast majority of us kind of are in the middle somewhere and we kind of just float through. We're not going to talk today about the villains in this case. We're not going to talk about the villains. The villains are for me to deal with. Next time on Criminal Conduct, the two ear witnesses say that they heard a woman scream out for help. John and I go back to the scene to see if that's even possible. I'm out walking, I'm across the street from the house where Jeremy Banks and Michelle O'Connell lived. I'm looking at the house where the ear witnesses were. How was Eli Washtock, a car body shop mechanic, able to afford an investigation into Michelle O'Connell's death? We spoke with one of his former co-workers. 
Eli was looking into that case. He dedicated his life to a lot of that money. case. A lot of money. And, and spent a lot of money. I, we we're that's, we're we're that's, what, that's, what that's what we're trying to find yeah. out. Yeah. 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 A lot of money. He didn't have a lot of money. That boy lived from paycheck to paycheck when he worked here. Things are not what they seem. That's next week on Criminal Conduct. A special thanks to our executive producer, Advertise Cast, and to Ruby Rose Fox for allowing us to use her song, Bury the Body. Her music is available anywhere you can purchase music. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, make sure to check out our other shows. John Taylor hosts a podcast called Twisted. Each episode, John unravels intricacies of true crime and does a deep dive analysis of some of the most thought-provoking crime cases. And check out the show Pretend Podcast. It's hosted by me, Javier Leva. Pretend is a true crime documentary style podcast about real people pretending to be someone else. I interview con artists and their victims. The links to both of our shows are in the show notes. A new episode of Criminal Conduct is out next week. Hey guys, it's Melissa and Mandy with the Moms and Murder podcast. We're a true crime podcast that's sure to make you laugh without compromising the seriousness of the content. Mm. Despite our name, we aren't just for the moms. Our show is for all the Diet Coke drinking, chicken loving, Dateline watching people in your life. Come for the murder and stay for the witty humor and pop culture references. And you never know, you may even hear from some of your favorite names in the world of true crime, like Dateline's Josh Mankiewicz. Do you have a preference on what we call you, Josh Mankiewicz, Manx, Sir Manx a lot? Uh, I don't hear Sir, Sir Manx a lot quite as often as I... <laughs> I can make it happen for you. Like. Broken Homicide's Derek Lavasser. Are you tearing up on me? I saw you <laughs> So beautiful, everything you're saying. <laughs> or even America's sweetheart, Ali Sweeney. The neighbor suggested that perhaps Kathleen had been attacked by... An owl. The owl theory um, that Melissa and Allie Sweeney believe. (laughs) Check out Moms and Murder anywhere podcasts are found. Creative Babble.